Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are listening to Rated LGBT Radio, and I'm your host, Rob Watson. And today we are doing something we we like to do a lot, which is new projects come out musically, filmically, um, uh, theatrically. Um, we've had uh, photographers on. We've had violinists on. Uh, we've had poets on. But uh, all these different aesthetic expressions um, are extremely exciting. And oftentimes, um, the the films and the, the productions that we feature um, are are seen as niche players, etc. Um, today we are going to be talking about a really exciting new film. It is premiering on HBO Max and um, HBO Latino, and it is a film called Lupe. Um, it is a beautifully shot film, incredibly acted. Um, simple, quiet, but deep and profound. Um, we, we, our guests today are going to include the lead actor, uh, Rafael Albaran, and um, the executive producer, Carrie Michelle O'Brien, um, who are going to talk about the creation of this film. It was a darling in the film festival set, and uh, HBO Latino recently um, uh, purchased it and is making it available uh, on both that platform and on HBO Max. So exciting things um, happening there. Um, before we get to our guests who are waiting on deck, I do want to bring on my esteemed colleague and um, uh, co-host, Brody Leck. Brody, welcome to the show. Hey, Rob, good afternoon, good afternoon, and good morning, or good day to our listeners around the globe. We appreciate you very, very much. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it's uh, been another rather hectic week. Uh, I wanted to make a footnote earlier today in Washington. Uh, the Equality Act was reintroduced uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives. This is a major push forward not only by Democrats uh, on the Hill, but also the Biden-Harris administration, uh, which is intent on seeing this particular piece of legislation pass. Unfortunately, while it will pass the U.S. House, it doesn't look as though it's going to make it through the U.S. Senate. Yesterday, Utah Senator Mitt Romney, who was one of the votes that the proponents and sponsors of the bill were hoping uh, to sign on to help its passage, indicated that he would not support the legislation as it did not contain a so-called religious liberty clause. Um, in the LGBTQ activist world, that's code for, yeah, we want to make sure that Christians and any people like that can discriminate against you and not get in trouble or get in the jackpot for it. So it essentially renders the legislation Useless. It would have been the same thing if they had put the clause in the 1964 Civil Rights Act that the black folk in the United States have all of these privileges and rights that are assigned to them by the U.S. Constitution, 
However, if someone took a religious objection to them, guess what? Uh, it's and, and I yeah. know people out there are going to get upset and go, ah, wait, that's not true. Actually, yes, folks, that is true. It's the same thing. So it is apples and apples. So that was introduced well, today. Why, uh, yeah. Why, why are people surprised that Romney would go that direction? I mean, I, I think people are deluded by the fact that just because Romney stood up against Trump that uh, suddenly he was different from the Romney who you know, ran originally, who was completely anti-marriage um, equality and you know, fought that in Massachusetts. And um, you know, he's never been a flag-waving um, LGBT um, advocate. I I don't know. I mean, it's it's kind of one of these situations where you know when you talk to these people, they think that they they're going to get some sort of moderate form off of them. At the end of the day, Romney has never really changed his position at all when it comes down to LGBTQ um, equality. So. You know, when they get all sorts of upset, um, it's like, really, guys? You're not, like, paying attention to this guy's uh, track record at all? Seriously? Um, yeah, so I don't know, Rob. I, I, At the end of the day, the biggest thing here is that there's a larger issue that goes beyond the Equality Act. And, and the issue, very simply put, is this. If Schumer and the Democratic majority of the United States Senate does not end the Senate filibuster once and for all, the Biden administration is going to be in the exact same position that the Obama-Biden administration was in for its second four years. There's going to get nothing done. This idea that you're going to be able to reach across the aisle and work with these Republicans is fantasy land. It's not going to happen. It's going to have right. to be, and of course, the president is very much opposed to this. Biden, uh, who served uh, 35, I believe, years um, in the United States Senate, is opposed. Um, this idea that this archaic Senate rule, which isn't even written into the U.S. Constitution, uh, is a good thing. Um, and at the end of the day, it's actually proven to be the vehicle by which there's more tyranny involved with the one-party majority than there would be any other way. And they're just simply going to have to basically put on their big boy pants and get rid of the filibuster and then pass some legislation that's desperately needed, including the Equality Act. At the end of the day, one of the major reasons this is so critically important is we've got 17 separate pieces of legislation right now floating across the United States that are targeting trans kids, kids between the ages of 14 to 24 that are involved in sports, principally targeted at trans girls. Okay. Every single one. We are trying to keep sports pure, okay, for women and girls sports, and we can't do that if we have biological males participating. It's the same old transphobic argument. And right now, that's the latest battle that the right has decided to go after. You know, it's, it's low-hanging fruit legally as far as they're concerned. So they're pushing this legislation 
They're pushing this in court. And once again, now if the Equality Act gets passed, not only does it nullify, but it mitigates these arguments in a lot of these lawsuits. But, you know, this is just yet another real-world example uh, of just kind of the – I don't even know what to call it anymore. I've just after, – after covering this for the last 12 years that I've been, you know, involved with queer media in addition to my day job of mainstream media, and even in mainstream media, I just – you know, it's, it's nuts. It's just – it's absolutely nuts. Um, you're never – going to see parity and equity when it comes down to the Christian right. It's just never going to happen. Barry Goldwater, senior United States senator from Arizona, warned years ago, we're talking 50 plus years ago, what would happen to the American Republican Party and more importantly, American politics, if the Christian right got in the middle of public policy? He basically said, you can't reason with these people. They're going to die on the hill of their religion, and they don't care. And that's exactly what has happened. It's happened with women's reproductive rights. It's happened with our rights. It's happened now with the, you know, in terms of the trans rights. It just, it's a never-ending, unceasing battle. You know, I said now again, to be fair, I'm not an American. I'm a Canadian, and my country and other countries you know, have a much better way of boxing religion in so that it doesn't become a pain in the ass. Unfortunately, you all don't have that because your First Amendment guarantees their ability to be a pain in the ass. And until such time that there's real equity or somebody steps on them and keeps them out of public policy, this is going to be an ongoing issue. You know, it transfers from one to the other to the other. People get mad at me because there's historic precedence for this. You can go back to the 1920s. Right after the Great War, you can go to the American South and actually other parts of the American Midwest. You can go to any Saturday night, Friday night, Monday morning, Tuesday morning, okay, where a crowd has assembled to hang a black person by lynching out in front of a courthouse. And in every single damn picture, every single damn lynching practically of large crowds, you will find some Pentecostal evangelical white minister screaming it's God's will. These people were disgusting back then, they are disgusting now, and they will continue to be disgusting. And the latest attack, okay, is cloaked, you know, with the religious freedom argument. There you go. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Like, there's a lot there. Um, Are there other senators? I mean, it still surprises me that why – they would pull out Mitt Romney as being an advocate on this. Aren't there other Republican senators that are pro LGBT um, that advocate for this rather than him? I mean, at this point, McConnell is trying to keep the caucus together. I'm not sure anybody's really willing to go over that. And because the transgender sports issue has suddenly become the topic of conversation on Capitol Hill regarding this legislation, at least as far as the Senate is concerned, okay, we're dealing with what Bryn Tannehill and I refer to as the ick factor. So getting someone who's a moderate, like, say, I don't know, Murkowski or Collins or someone like that to sign on board if Senator McConnell whips the caucus together is highly doubtful. There is no such thing as voting their conscience. We saw that, okay, well, evidence, yeah. what, well, you know, two weeks to ago. To be fair, you know? to be fair, yeah, 
But, well, to be fair, we did see that, but we also saw um, seven senators that stood up, you know, and did exactly that. So, I mean, it isn't, it's certainly not the majority, but, uh, you know, it's there. Um, so I, I'm not, I'm not quite certain that that's, that's dead. And just to, to point out the, um, religious freedom argument, um, early on in the United States, um, the, the, the real guardianship was to keep separation of church and state. And there, what has happened in the last few years is reinterpretation of things that are not, are not really correct. And it's, it's standing up to make sure that that things are appropriately um, interpreted. Religious freedom does not mean the imposition of one religious philosophy on everybody else. That isn't what it means. And, and um, the Supreme Court has stood up against that um, for years to make sure it didn't mean that. Um, but that's the influence that we have to, to fight against. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit. Yeah, I want to yeah. shift gears a little bit because we are we are talking about um, today LGBT films and um, you know their impact. One that is also making a stir on the landscape is um, it's a sin out of the UK. Um, what have you heard and your thoughts on that? Honestly, I have heard um, nothing because I have been so wrapped up in the political sphere that you've got me on that one. So I will need to be educated in a primer on that particular film. Okay. Well, I haven't seen it yet. It is both being heralded for, you know, first of all, just the subject matter itself, because there is um, a dearth of material around the eighties and the AIDS experience, Um, you know, and the, the ones that, have been produced have been primarily out of New York um, because of uh, normal heart and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the impact through Broadway and um, theater productions that have depicted it. Um, Right. The, uh, you know, it's a sin covers um, the UK and kind of the experience of some of the young people there. It's produced by the same uh, person who uh, did queer as folk um, it is getting some backlash um, from different angles, um, some, some which I think are valid, some I think are um, a little bit purist um, from the kind of the cancer culture um, retrospective of looking through the lens of today versus looking at the, the true experience then. Um, okay. I lived through the AIDS epidemic from the Los Angeles perspective and I have to honestly say, I have not seen that experience and that community represented at all um, in any of these productions. Um, and it's, I guess I'm becoming more aware of how each geography and each landscape and each community really experiences it a little bit differently. Um, and, you know, the nuances of each one um, are not necessarily depicted by one or the other. Um, you know, so um, anyway, I'm just hopeful that, that those stories from the Los Angeles perspective also um, get told eventually. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But today, but today um, we are talking about um, 
very unique film, very unique perspectives. The film is Lupe. Um, and uh, what I'd like to do right now is bring on our guests um, because I can't wait to hear their perspective being on the inside of this incredible film. Um, welcome, folks. Hi, how are you? Great. Who are we speaking to today? <laughs> I, this is Rafael Albarran. I uh, had the honor to play Lupe and the lead role of this movie that I cannot wait for everyone to watch. Uh, Rafael, Hi. you are and incredible in it. <laughs> oh, thank you. Go ahead. Thank you so much. I appreciate that a lot. Sorry, I yeah, had to say fan base right there. <laughs> is okay, that Kerry? Yeah, you've got the executive producer. Yeah, this is Kerry Michelle, executive producer. <laughs> Hi, Kerry. And uh, kudos to you as well. I'm so thrilled and impressed and moved by the film, which obviously has um, your your vision and your your heart and soul all over it. Um, uh, Raphael was a little more front and center being the, the lead and the star of it, obviously. So, um, but it, it, is, it is something that everyone should see. It is beautifully shot. The acting is impeccable. Um, the story is riveting. And I have to tell you, and I'm not gonna give it away, but the last minute of the film had me absolutely in tears. So, oh, thank you there's, so there's... much. I appreciate that. <laughs> so, yeah, um, it, it makes me in... cry every time too. So, it, well, it's just so poetically tied together, in in my opinion. It's just, um, um, it it is just an incredibly beautiful work, and. Um, I, I just I just found the very last part of it um, so huge and impactful. I will I will compare it to the very last moments of um, the film Call Me by Your Name, where the lead character looks in the camera at the end of that film, and for whatever reason, the entirety of the film seems to come together in that last instant. And I felt that. That's amazing. At the end That's amazing. I am just missing. I am just missing the Academy Award nomination. But other than that, I am there with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yet. <laughs> I mean, you're not out of the running, are you? <laughs> we're 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 we we may be a predictor of things to come. Um, so, Karen Michelle, tell us how the film came about how you got involved. I mean, it was the, um, the original script was written by um, Andre and Charles. And how did, how did it come into being? Well, they, um, they've been working on a number of sort of, um, sort of, sort of theater and improv groups and sort of wanted to produce this, uh, Piece. They were working with Celia, who actually appears opposite Raphael in the film, and they sort of worked it through and knew kind of what the story they wanted to tell was. Um, I came to the party quite late. Uh, I'm actually uh, famous for post-production and, um, and editing, and uh, the, their amazing editor, Sharan, came to me in, I think it was uh, August 2017, uh, when she was doing a rough cut of the film, 
to ask for my input. And she said, you know, Kerry, you know, I've seen you on the forums. I was a late transitioner. I came out as transgender at the age of 48 in 2017. And just a couple of months after I'd completely committed commercial suicide with my work, um, Shiran reaches out to me, shows me this piece. And she said, you know, I want some notes. I appreciate your input. Well, she calls me up and calls me out on it three days later. She says, you know, Kerry, where are your notes? And I said, well, you can have your notes when I stop crying. And um, <laughs> it's just, you know, even in its rough cut state, we could see what an amazing piece of work the boys had done. And Raphael, that um, acting was just unbelievable. It just spoke volumes off the screen. And also the fact that, I say, I was a late transitioner. I've been living in the closet for way too many years. And then to see someone coming out and be so bold and seeing that reflected on the screen, how could I not be involved and bring it across the finish line? Yeah, no, absolutely. What, um, in that experience for you, because I, I, I can see how that film would speak to your soul um, on, on so many levels. Um, what, what what did it mean to you? What I mean, can you can you elaborate more on, on no, but, what what you saw as you as oh, you yes. were experiencing it? Yeah, well, one of the things is it's amazing and beautiful to actually see a film in which we're represented not as sociopaths or serial killers or on the game. You know, we're actually reflected as human beings, sort of just fumbling and stumbling along and trying to find our way and trying to be genuine. That's all we want to do is we just want to be loved and be genuine. And to see that evolve in Raphael to Lupe's character is just beautiful. It just was like, it was just so many things there that, that sort of made me get, have hope and tenderness and thinking, well, I hope this encourages dialogue between people as to the fact that, you know, we're not, you shouldn't make a snap judgment about us. We are human beings. We just want to be loved and we just want to be genuine. We look it's a bit different and we experience it in a very sort of fantastically fabulous way. But we are still just individuals that need to be loved. And that just comes across so strongly in the film. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's deeply moving. Um, uh, Raphael, you, I, I'm, I'm I actually like, Fan tongue-tied with you because it just you um, you're so beautiful in the film. Um, you know, just the 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 depths of the look of your in your eyes um, um, throughout. Um, you know, it's um, I mean you're 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 raw in it. Um, you are a writer as well, and uh, I know a lot of the dialogue in the film was your own. Um, how did that, how did your writing mind and your acting mind come together? And how did, what, how was this film presented to you in the, at the outset that made you want to do it? I think well, I've asked, uh, asked like five questions and there are one. <laughs> <laughs> I, think I, I think I can do this. I think I can do this. <laughs> uh, first of all, thank you so much for, for being so flattering uh, with my work and with the film. Um, I, I really think it's very special and it, it definitely has been special for all of us involved in it. When we were creating this six years ago, it, it was not even our, in our wildest, in our wildest dreams to think that this film would made it all the way to HBO. 
Um, this was like a film, you know, make it, we made it with like, you know, the less resources you can imagine. And it kind of was built with time over time by chunks, by people like Harry coming along the way and putting, you know, you know, their love and their, and their craft into it. And it made it what it is. Um, I started my career as an actor in Puerto Rico when I was 12 years old. And I started writing when I was 15. I went to school for journalism and literature and then went to do my master's in acting and playwriting. And I, I, I feel like my journey in my life kind of prepared me for, for this project. But what I was not prepared was to what I was about to discover of myself. And, and again, when I did this six years ago, I never thought that this was going to be the, the end goal of this journey, which just makes everything so beautiful. But at the time when we were on set, uh, the minute that I, I got the part and I got cast in it, I immediately understood the weight and responsibility that I had. Six years ago, I identified myself as a gay man. And back then, like trans and trans uh, themes and movies and just trans in the public sphere was not as discussed as it is right now. In the past five years, we've had, you know, um, shows like Pose and, 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 you know, shows like Orange is New Black, all these shows that actually came after we shot Lupe, after we started pre-production with Lupe. Um, so, you know, back then, even, like, like, I was like, this is huge. This is big. I have a huge responsibility. And I, I honestly, as soon as I started doing research for the role, I started to realize how how ignorant I was in in the themes of trans and and all the topics that embark the trans umbrella. And the more I read and the more I learned and the more I researched, the more I realized that you know how important this was. And I feel like a lot of people have asked me through 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 the last couple of weeks that I've been doing interviews, like, is that was that you? Like, it was just so real. Like, was that you? And I feel like there's a little bit of me in there because I feel like as a gay man in this patriarchal society that we all live, we as men we barely have opportunities to explore our femininity. You know, we all get trapped in this mm-hmm. toxic masculinity and these expectations of what being a man is. And all of a sudden, here I am, uh, you know, going on a journey on a movie in which a character is in a journey to discover his femininity and her femininity and how her femininity looks like and how her femininity feels like. And I feel like that exploration that was part already of the script I feel like I took a little bit of ownership uh, on that and I started making it part of my own personal exploration. And to the point that now, six years after this process, I don't even consider myself anymore. Uh, I don't like refer myself as a gay man. I am a non-binary human. You know, I've changed my pronouns right now. I'm, you know, I use he and she and they. And all that process, started with the discovery of myself through this character. And again, this is the last thing I did. Six years ago, this was my last project as an actor. And 
immediately after this project, I started developing and involving myself into my writing. And I've been writing ever since. So for me, it's really full circle, very crazy, almost like dreamlike, that after I decided to quit and stop acting, six years later, all, this, all of a sudden this film like emerged like the way it has done. And I'm very excited, and I cannot wait for the world to see it. And uh, thank you so much for all your questions. <laughs> Oh no, no, I no! You, that you, I'm not, I'm not sure the question was framed that well, but you answered it beautifully. Um, and I do, yeah. hope you, I hope you do more acting. I, it's like that would be tragic if, um, if that was your very last acting. Um, and I'm sure your writing well, it's is funny. It's is funny that profound. you again, like it's so funny, like how how everything has worked out. Because again. This was my last project as an actor, and I, for two years after I made this film, I tried to audition, and I would never get the role because I didn't look Latino enough, or I didn't look rough enough, or I didn't look darker enough. And I would always be getting this, like, very frustration experiences from, like, casting directors and, like, casting experiences. And I, I decided to stop that. I was like, I'm going to stop this. And I'm going to write, and I'm going to write things that I want to be in it, and I'm going to write my own things. And again, before I even knew that our movie loop was going to be on HBO, I, I wrote a movie for myself. And, and the entire movie is around, again, similar to Lupe, that she's like finding her, her, you know, her womanhood and her femininity and what is her women. Like the movie that I wrote is, how do you present yourself as a non-binary human in this, again, toxic masculinity society and culture that we live in? So she has a movie already written, so she's looking for producers, anyone that's available, and she's ready to act. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, yeah, it's it just, you know, it's like your your performance in this, just, you know, even in the moments of silence in this film, it's like you you just exude it, and obviously the fact that it was stirring up your own experience, and you were you know you were you were very unguarded about letting that show, and it was was really beautiful. Um, now the scenes with you and um, Celia were unscripted, and Celia is a transgender artist who plays um, a key role of Lana in the film, and Lana's kind of. Uh, almost like the Greek chorus. I mean, she's like, she's sort of like the angel on the side guiding um, the, the main character through um, to the point well, that she the, the name that I aspire to. Yeah. It was, it, it, she, uh, what I wanted to ask you was what was that like in those scenes where you both showed up and the dialogue and everything came out of you individually? Well, as soon as I met her, I met her on our first day of shooting and she was incredibly nervous and I also was nervous, but she came to me and immediately was completely transparent and very vulnerable with me. And she, she told me that she was an actress and that she was very nervous. And I knew that like part of the script and the story was inspired and, and, and it was helped to, was helped being built by her 
and she was very much part of the process of the creation of the script. So I immediately told her, like, you might not be an actress, but you're a brave woman, and we're about to tell, and we're about to, and we're about to tell stories about brave women, and we're just gonna be brave together. And that bonding that happened right before actually going on set um, really relaxed us, and like. It was like it was. It really felt like if we were have been friends forever, you know. There was like that blind, honest trust that I feel is very palpable in the film, and because of that trust, Andre and Charles, the directors, trust in us to just kind of like take the movie wherever we wanted it to, which is you know very bravely also from like you know creators to just like give give out. The, the, the power in a way and give out the, the, the you know the, the direction of the movie could have gone in many many ways and they just trust us so I feel like there was a lot of trust around the process and it came down to all of us every single person that was on that set truly realizing how important was this story that we were telling and I, again I cannot wait for people to watch this because at the end of the story it's not only a story about trans or women or men, or it's a story about authenticity. And I feel like that is something that each one of us struggles throughout our journey, regardless of our orientation and sexuality. It's a story about being authentically you and empower yourself, however that might look like. And also, yeah, no, I'd absolutely. Like to fit in here with. Oh, <laughs> sure, Carrie. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I just want to sort of back up what Raphael was saying because, you know, it is more than just a trans story. You know, this, you know, myself as an immigrant that's lost everything here and, you know, lost family and connection and wishing to reconnect, there's that every person story there as well as, you know, where do we belong? Where do we, where do we find family? Where do we find friendship? And where do we find ourselves? And as Raphael was saying, how do we be genuine and true to ourselves? I, actually, that is that is one of the things that um, I have um, quite a few uh, trans friends and um, have had for for quite a few years, and I have always told um, pretty much each and every one of them, and I'm not just telling this; it is actually the truth that I find them incredibly inspiring and heroic um, for standing up and being who they are. First of all. But I always take something away from that in, in the fact that we are all, every human is individual. And there are aspects of each and every one of us that we have to come to terms with of being our authentic selves. And in, you know, because of the nature of society and, you know, from misogyny to homophobia to, you know, all of those different elements, the trans experience is certainly the one that is pushing, for whatever reason, the um, the set boundaries that people seem to hold. And so, to, to to make a stand for yourself in that arena certainly is absolutely heroic and brave. But I think it's something that everybody, on an individual level, can find that experience within themselves as well. Um, even though it isn't as brave to stand up and say you know, I'm a guy and I like to cook or, you know, I'm a, I'm a woman and I like to tinker with cars or whatever. But I mean, but to, to a certain extent, 
um, you know, roles and norms are are thrust upon almost everyone. And I think the, the well, whole trans like, experience. Like said, it's, it's like being a man is as much of a trap as being a woman. You know, we've all trapped in these ideas of what it looks like or what it should be to be a man and a woman. Where in, And at the end of the day, it's all about how you feel and how authentic and good you feel about yourself. You know, and I feel like that's why this story is so empowering. Because at the end of the movie, the traditional idea that you might think of a woman is not that one. Like, you, you know, like we see her at the end realizing that she doesn't like long hair. She doesn't like wigs, and that that not that, that doesn't make her a woman, you know. And and I feel like that like a lot of women also that have the film that, you know, that they're you know straight orientation orientation women that you know they see themselves straight. They've been like, oh my god, like the movie like speaks so much to me because like I also like you know like have this conflict with femininity and womanhood. And, and and again, I cannot speak more about the universality of this film. Yeah, and I, yeah, I'd yeah. like to pitch in here again, if, if I may. <laughs> oh, um, oh, oh you know, go it, for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So, you know, yeah, yeah. So, so, so for me, you know, I too was on a journey that I saw reflected back in the evolution of this film. Um, going on from what Raphael was saying, you know, I used to be obsessed with passing and the fact that I don't pass used to really upset me. And, um, you know, just realizing, okay, you know, we can find our own truth. We can find our own way of looking. We can find our own way of being. And hell yeah, I'm still a woman, um, you know, even though I've got a deep voice and, um, you know, look a bit peculiar, I'm still a woman in myself and that is my truth. And also something else I want to share with you on this thing, you know, Raphael discovering that he was, um, you know, had was, was non-binary. I, when I took this film on, I hadn't seen my children in the UK for quite a while. And through the publicity of the last week of this movie, I actually took it upon myself to actually become genuine with my family in the UK. So I reached out to my children and last weekend I came out as transgender to them. I was able to use the the film as a vehicle to say, hey, you know, your dad's been making another movie, you know, because I've had critical acclaim in the past. And uh, this is one that involves the LGBT community. And then I went, oh, and by the way, I'm transgender. And it was such a beautiful moment to share that with my three children. You know, that wow. I got them all together uh, and we did a video, we did, we did a video call for the first time in four years. <laughs> they hadn't actually seen me. Um, and we, we sort of chatted, and it was quite a surprise. I wasn't dressed, um, but they were very, very accepting. And the real beautiful point of that was my eldest took it upon herself to come out to me as bisexual at the same time. So, mm. you know, nothing but good things are coming from discussing around this movie, and, and it, that was the level of impact. It was for me to finally admit to myself, I'm okay being the Kerry Michelle that I am, and I'm now ready to tell my family about it. That's huge. That's huge, Carrie Michelle. That is so huge. Um, uh, have, have you talked to them since then? Have, have besides your eldest, have, have oh, you yeah. had further conversations? Well, we 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 haven't had a, a verbal conversation. We've been messaging, you know, um, which has been great, and she's been sort of telling me some things, but. 
I don't, my, my kids weren't exactly surprised um, because I had been dating their mum as a bisexual individual. I came out as bisexual in the 80s, um, specifically around an issue to do with Clause 28 that Thatcher tried to introduce by marginalising people of diversity. Uh, so it wasn't a huge surprise to them, but by the fact that I'd actually pressed the trigger and done it, I think was the, was, was the element that they were surprised about. Right, right. That, that, I mean, it's, that, is, that is probably the most scariest environment of the coming out process in whatever way is facing your family. I know for me with just being gay, that was the pinnacle one was, was the family. Cause it's, it, and it's not even if whether or not they actually know it's once you say it, once you identify it, it, there's no going back. It never, you know, it's a door that slams completely shut. You, you've made that commitment and you're there, you know, it's, um, yeah, it, 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 it is huge. It becomes, it becomes a reality, you know, it becomes something that you say, okay, this is me, this is what we have to do, and this is how it's going to be going forward, you know? And it was just well, such a, um, you know, it's just such a sort of beautiful thing to share, and I had a very close friend sitting next to me while I was doing it, and she couldn't believe it that I'd done it. She thought I was going to kick it out. But also, I, I, you know, I, I was touring the film at festivals, and one of the best things that would happen would be the dialogue and discussions that we do at the Q&As afterwards and then individually people who'd seen the film or other people from the festival would come up and they talk about hey I can I can see how my my daughter who came out as trans you know recently I can now understand and I've got a level to talk and ask questions and other people were going yeah I can understand that why my friend is the way they are around this and I can now talk to them something. It was just a beautiful catalyst for all sorts of great things. Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, it, that's the thing. It is, it is, I think when people get past the prejudicial notions around it and, and there are some attitudes in society that are absolutely bizarre and they, I think they go deep into um, what Raphael is talking about, about toxic masculinity and, um, you know, the, the deep-seated homophobia that is part of that. But the, you know, in its pure form, the transgender experience is, is a human experience. I mean, it's about involvement. It's about mm-hmm. personal involvement. And, and, you know, and, you know, we're, we all have a journey to and discover that's why, ourselves. That's why we need more stories like this. We need so much more stories like this. They barely aren't enough. And I, I heard you talking before we got into the conversation, you know, about, you know, this new HBO show and, and you know, and, and, and London. I saw the first two episodes, by the way. Um, and this constant cancel culture that I am so sick of, so sick with, you know, it's such poison within our own community. You know, we already have enough with the world being rough on us. And we're the first ones to, like, bring each other down. Like, we need to seriously stop canceling each other and supporting each other as much as we can. Look, you can watch the movie. You can watch the TV show. You can watch whatever. If they make something that is for a community, watch it. You can decide yeah. to hate on later. Right. You can decide to, like, criticize on later. You can decide to never see it again later. But we have to support each other. We 
we have to. We have enough with others, you know, coming for us. We cannot come and cancel each other, you know what I mean? Yeah, which is, again, is why I was... I, which is why I wanted to be involved with this project is because it was such a positive thing. It was, you know, there's no sort of judgment in there. There's no sort of uh, putting of people down. It's so, you know, whereas I, I, I've lived in San Francisco and I've lived in West Hollywood and the level of peer judgment is unbelievable, you know? Um, yeah, it is. But I'm like, sorry? Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I think, I think part of that is, generational um because you know i'm coming from from the past where you know in the 80s um as a young man and having friends die and and you know this was you know i was under the the um the auspices of the reagan administration you know they were the that was the conventional thought of the day was was that administration and society underneath it and we, you know, as being gay people and, you know, anything that came out that was not outright hostile and outright condemning was embraced. I mean, we, you know, it's like it wasn't, you know, we didn't have this fine-tuned comb of acceptability that, you know, a lot of people have now. And I think it is from people who have grown up where we've won rights and we've won different awarenesses and it's a little bit unforgiving, you know, in terms of anything that is perceived by one person or another of, of things that are, are flawed. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I think to Raphael's point, we need more, we need more works because. Oh my God. Then, so much then more. You, we, so much more. Yeah. Yeah, and we, 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 need, we, need, we, need, we need stories that um, focus, you know, just on the human condition, which reflects us, you know, doesn't necessarily make us the point and center of attention, but we need something that, that just sort of illustrates our lives and illustrates that how, how humanizing we can be, you know, because I, 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 I was just so fed up with transgender individuals like me being seen as kiddie fiddlers or psychopaths. You know, and, right. and, I, and I get a lot of that judgment still, you know, you know, I can tell you growing up as a bisexual gay man in the 80s was a hell of a lot easier than being a transgender individual in the year 2010, you know? It was, no, um, absolutely, absolutely. Brody, you had you know, thought? it's like, you know. Yeah, let me jump sorry? in. Um, I, I had a, the two guests are like, oh, wait, there's another person here. Um, first of all, congratulations. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Congratulations on the film, uh, uh, Raphael. Hola, uh, Raphael. Qué uh, bueno, qué muy bueno. Okay. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Raphael. Um, in the last year, we've seen the deaths of at least uh, 15 transgender women in Puerto Rico. We have seen uh, they've been murdered, most of them. We've seen a horrific uptick in spike of anti-trans animus, particularly in the Latina uh, and Latino communities. Um, I'm the editor of the Los Angeles Blade newspaper. Uh, my reporters and I have been covering this for actually a while now. One of the things that I wanted to ask you, uh, given the culture, not only where you're from in Puerto Rico, but uh, in, in Cuba and some of the other places in Central America, uh, especially in, say, places like Nicaragua and San Salvador, uh, uh, 
places like Honduras, Costa Rica. Do we see this film sending a really stronger message to that community? Because I don't think even a, a lot of people are aware of just how much of a marginalization battle it really is within the Latino community. It's so it's so strong in the Latino community because again, if you think that white male cis guy is trapped in masculinity, uh, the Latino man it's literally locked in his grandmother's closet under five keys. So it goes down to that uh, you know that idea of what makes you a man and you know what you know what is desirable. You know when in reality sexuality is very very fluid. We are many things. And as soon as we define ourselves as something, we prevent ourselves from freely exploring whatever else comes natural to ourselves. And this comes through, like, education, right? So Latinos communities and Latinos countries, like, the level of education is, like, even worse than here in America. So the problem is even harsher. Right now, this past year, there has been way more coverage because of, the coronavirus, the pandemic, we're all really in our house sitting and we're just consuming information constantly. But they have been killing us as much and as strongly for the last 40 years. You know, like I feel like what's different now is the coverage and, 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 and also the consciousness of my generation and like, you know, the social media generation that all of a sudden something gets really far where before it would, it would, it would be very easily uh, buried. I remember, oh my God, like I still have it like a tattoo memory in my brain. I was, I think, 16 years old and I was reading this article about this trans uh, a girl that was basically caught into shops, like caught into little shops and put in a bag and set on fire and thrown under a mountain. And I remember mm-hmm. reading this in the main newspaper. You know, like the violence and the, like, cruel, like, you know, you know, scary, something about violence around the trans individuals have always existed in the Latino community, but, like, we have, we have looked the other side, but now every, every year it's harder to look the other side, you know, and that's why we might have this feeling that we're not advancing anywhere, but that's not true, we are. We are because movies like Luba are hitting the mainstream because all of a sudden this is in our this is in our awareness. All of a sudden we're talking about this. All of a sudden we're we're worried about this. We're like ten years ago, like it would still be there, but it was not part of the collective consciousness. So so I am hopeful. I am hopeful. Oh, of course we have lots of work to do. Lots of work, but. The work is being done. You know, the, the conversations are being had. But at the end of the day, if we don't focus on educating our society, we're going to keep reproducing the same mistake. It really comes down to education. That's it. You know, like, and like every opportunity is an opportunity to educate someone. You know, like, not, like again, that's why I'm such against the cancel culture. You know, it's so easy to, like, cancel someone in this garden, but it's so much harder and rewarding to, like, sit down and have that conversation. And all of a sudden, that person might not change right there in front of you. That person has that with you. And that person will remind, will remember the way that you make them feel and that compassion that you show them. Again, little by little, baby steps, but we are on the right path. 
No, that's, I think you bring up some really important points. And I love what you just said about sitting down and having the conversation with our adversaries. Um, my writing in the past uh, as a columnist was exactly doing that, was open letters to people who, who were essentially bigots and uh, against the LGBTQ community. But the, the articles were basically a dialogue with them of reason and having a conversation. And the reason to have the conversation wasn't just to try to influence them and change them, but because people are listening. People listen from both sides. Yeah. And in that conversation, you are influencing people who are seeing their point and seeing your point. And it, it is through education. It's through constant, constant education, um, you know, uh, and, and having people understand. And part of the, I think, the magic of a film like Lupe is that you've told the story of an individual's experience. And we get to know and love this, this person. And by understanding them and loving them, we start to get what the issues are. And we get, you know, the nuance of, of rather than seeing some intellectual argument and some discussion. That's the power of theater and that's the power of film. You know, we get we we get that opportunity to like be shot and just listen <laughs> and just consume the story and then later like you know process it as well, however we will process it. But that's I, I cannot stress enough. There's not enough stories. There's not enough Latina stories. There's not enough queer stories. There's not enough trans stories. Like we Latinos right now represent. We are we have become the biggest minority in the United States. We have not even 1% like of stories in the media or representation in the, in the media or in, right. in the movies. You know, like the Oscars and all these awards ceremonies that, like grandiose, you know, the white supremacy year after year after year. Like, you know, it's just, it's just like these things are important, you know, and they, they can make a difference by just acknowledging us there's nothing more powerful than that another person feels seen. And for the last, I don't know what, 100 years of the Academy, they still haven't been able to make our community feel seen. You know, like, there's so much talented Latino actors, Latino storytellers, and, like, there's not enough. There's not enough, and there's no excuses. You know, because, like, there's always the excuse of, like, oh, I don't know if that's going to be profitable. Like, oh, I don't know, it's going to be like, but how many white, cisgender, like, Tom Cruise movie have been flopped? <laughs> right, exactly, you know exactly. I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can you point to I mean? a bigger white, cisgender flop than in a Latino one, absolutely. <laughs> you know, like, we're here, we're here, and we're hungry, and we, and again, that process of educating the community starts with the art. That's what artists have been doing since the Greeks. You know, we're the mirror to society, but if we don't have the representation, if they don't put us in the, in the streaming services, if they don't show our voices, how are we going to get to that person that is full of fear and is full of this, you know, again, touching that community that has been educated to him. You know, you know, it's like all this process of relearning that has to happen, but it's not going to happen by itself. 
No, no, absolutely. I, I want to put in here for our listeners so that they, they know when and where to find this. Um, Lupe is premiering on Friday, February 26th, 8 p.m. Eastern time, um, uh, and I guess 8 p.m. Pacific time as well, um, on HBO Latino and available for streaming on HBO Max. Um, uh, Carrie, Michelle, are there any other um, uh piece of information where people can get more information or locations they can get more information we should make them aware of? Yeah, the, the, the main one would be um, uh, the website, which is uh, www.lupefilm.com. You can, uh, you can go and view the trailer there and you can see the awards that we've won and you can also contact us and get in touch with us through that site. Perfect. Perfect. Well, guys, thank you so much for both of you joining us today. You're fabulous. Um, again, I love the film and, um, you know, it, I'm going to carry that around for me with me, um, you know, in my heart and soul for, for a while. Um, we have literally two minutes left. Um, what have we not asked that we should have? Um, that you, what you should ask is, is it a fabulous movie? And the answer is, hell yes. Is it good, <laughs> is it good honest family entertainment? Hell yes, it is. Is it beautiful? And is everybody in it beautiful? Hell they are. Oh, good. Well, I hope I had made that clear. <laughs> but I didn't form it as a question. You're right. <laughs> because to me, it wasn't a question. It was already answered. But, you no, know, folks, you need to go. You need to see this. You need to, to stream it. Um, you know, it's a good reason to sign up for HBO Max if you don't already have it. Um, um, it's impactful. It's beautiful. And um, last little tidbit, the name of the film wasn't on the film until uh, Raphael named it in a scene in the movie, which yes. um, I think is, is fascinating in itself. It was an improvised scene. <laughs> so, I, so, I, I so, remember so like beautiful. it was yesterday, like Andres comes to me and he's like, okay, so like we're going to add a scene. This is not on the screen. You're going to be in the toilet. Uh, Lana's going to be in the, to- in, the, in the top and you have to come out with your name. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, great. Again, you know, all the well, thank you, I did, thank you, came to play. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for the film. Thank you for everything you both do. Um, and I'm anxious to see what what you both come up with in future projects because I know it's going to be phenomenal. I want to thank Brody as my thank you co-host so here and everything he does. And I want to thank our listeners. We will be back again next week with another exciting, wonderful topic. I have no idea what it is, but I know it will be great. (laughs) And we look forward to you joining us then as well. Um, With that, thank you for listening to Rated LGBT Radio. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. 